Scientists, check. Investors, check. Next up, policymakers. The title of my guest's keynote at this year's Longevity Forum. As you might expect, when that guest is longevity legend Aubrey de Grey, all on hand were wrapped. What ideas would we hear from the biogerontologist who styles himself as the longevity maverick out there taking the bullets and speaks of abstract concepts like longevity escape velocity? Hello, Aubrey. Well, hello, Susan. Thank you for having me on the show. So we won't start with longevity escape velocity, Aubrey. Let's go directly to policy. How do we get the policymakers up to speed with those in science and tech making genuine advances in healthy longevity? Yeah, it's a real challenge. I mean, if it were easy, then it would have already happened, right? Um, essentially, the main difficulty is to get policymakers to care. In other words, to understand that this is something that they will, you know, that you know, bad things will happen if they don't pay attention right now. That was pretty easy for scientists once they understood that the kind of things that I and others were saying um, you know, actually did make scientific sense because their purpose is to make progress. And more recently, it was also fairly straightforward for investors, people like Jim Mellon, who, of course, started the Longevity Forum, uh, because once they could see where the science had already got to, they were able to join the dots. They were able to understand that the uh, science had reached sufficient proof of concept that it could be taken forward through you know, through the remaining stages to actual products and revenue and so on. But for policymakers, the issue, of course, is that most things revolve ultimately around the electoral cycle, around the short-termism that is dictated by the requirement to get re-elected fairly soon. And this is something that, you know, it's probably not going to happen all that soon. You know, I have been predicting a time frame within which I feel that there's a 50-50 chance of reaching a decisive level of comprehensiveness in our ability to keep people healthy late in life. Uh, and that time frame has been coming down, but it's still 17 years, which is several times the average electoral cycle, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the thing that I believe is... The main route towards getting policymakers to pay attention and indeed the thing that I feel is the most important route in the sense of being highest priority to avoid you know, serious turbulence and failure to actually achieve optimum progress is to actually focus on the horizon scanning that policymakers do. The stuff that governments do behind the scenes that, that rather than engaging in you know, educating people to change what their policy is right now and what they say on, you know, on stage and on camera to the public right now, what we want to do is be getting people to be planning behind the scenes so that they can react to changes that happen in the future. Politicians and thus policymakers are hamstrung by the public, which considers aging off limits to medicine, you know, the Frankenstein factor. How do we get past that reality? I believe that at the level of policy in the near term, we simply can't get past it. The job for people like me is to change public attitudes to aging first and to acknowledge the fact that policymakers and politicians have to simply follow public opinion rather than lead it. But that doesn't really apply when we talk about horizon scanning. Horizon scanning is all about optimizing the government's ability to respond 
quickly and nimbly to changing public opinion as and when it changes. And that can only happen if the changes that are going to happen in the future to public attitude, public opinion, have been accurately anticipated. In your keynote, you said we are all in a critical degree of denial about healthy longevity. What did you mean by that? Basically, what I mean is that the horror of aging has been absolutely apparent to the whole of humanity since the beginning of civilization. And until extraordinarily recently, really until I came along, there has been no prospect of doing anything about it, which means that our only option has been to try to put it out of our minds and get on with our miserably short lives and, you know, make the best of it rather than being preoccupied by this appalling thing that's going to happen to us late in life if not if we don't get, like, you know, eaten by lions in the meantime. So, you know, it, make, it made perfect sense until the past 15, 20 years. We have had no choice but to be constructing these bizarre, irrational rationalizations to help us put aging out of our minds. And it doesn't matter how irrational they are, you know, uh, to decide that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise or to, um, to decide that it's some kind of complete inevitability of the universe, like, you know, the heat death of the universe that no one can do anything about just in order that we don't end up being preoccupied by it. So, you know, that makes perfect sense until now. Now, it's an enormous part of the problem. Well, where are we now in terms of the science? You know, when you first came on the scene 20 years ago with your prediction that the first person to live to 1,000 years walks among us, you were, as Longevity Forum co-founder Jim Mellon aptly put it, a prophet in the wilderness but now, as he also says, you're the prophet who called it right. Where are we on the science? You know, is it a couple of years until we're going to be taking pills to resolve macular degeneration? Well, of course, the whole approach that I have been propounding for the past 20 years is damage repair. And that means that basically, by definition, it's a divide and conquer approach, because there are many different types of damage that the body does to itself throughout life, and that eventually contribute to the health problems that we have late in life. So if we look at where we are, naturally, there is a spectrum. Some of the approaches to damage repair are quite far along. They're already in clinical trials. Some of them are within a year or two of clinical trials, including some of the companies that Jim has invested in, and some of them are maybe five years away. But we're getting pretty close. Now, if we add all that together, we have to recognize, first of all, that we've got to get all of them working, even the most difficult ones. Secondly, that clinical trials take a little bit of time to actually get from starting to finishing, obviously. And thirdly, that at the end of all that, we have to put all these things together and apply the same therapies at the same time to the same people, which imposes another you know, degree of experimentation. So one way or another, this, mean, this is what adds up to my estimate that we have a 50-50 chance of getting to truly comprehensive damage repair within 17 years from now. But how do we get past the regulators? You know, your clinical trials are happening, but are they just going to come to a dead stop because the regulators still say you're dabbling in things you shouldn't be? 
Well, let's remember that the regulators have plenty of a say in the conducting of clinical trials, not just in the approval of things after clinical trials. So that conversation is already in full swing. And indeed, now there has been a lot of progress. If we just look at the USA for illustration, the USA now, the FDA, which is, of course, the regulatory authority there, the Food and Drug Administration, they have come up with a definition of a clinical endpoint for a clinical trial that merits the approval of a drug and which is aging in all but name. They don't use the word aging. They have constructed some rather complex combinatorial thing that, um, you know, satisfies their criteria for an endpoint, but it also satisfies the biogerontologist criteria for a definition of aging. So that problem is largely solved at this point. Well, do we not all have to move away from all talk of life extension and anti-aging and reversal of aging to extension of health span, which is much more palatable language to everyone. Yeah, sometimes it can be a bit too palatable. The problem with the word health span is that it kind of fails to challenge the prejudice that life extension is a bad thing. You know, the, you know, the idea that people have in their heads that they'd like to uh, you know, stay healthy until they're, let's say, 90 years old and then just not wake up one morning. The fact is, if you find, if you, if you take a bunch of people who are 90 and they're unusually healthy for their age, not a lot of them are going to want to not wake up in the morning, right? So actually, we need to be more honest about this. We need to acknowledge that, yes, it is all about health, but that longevity is a side effect of health that's going to occur and that should be celebrated rather than viewed as a kind of trade-off, a kind of, you know, bad side effect of health. We actually should be celebrating the fact that these things go together. But we're not seeing the compressed morbidity. You know, we're seeing the longer lifespans, but we're not yet seeing that Shangri-La occurrence in tandem with longer living, uh, where we have compressed comorbidity at the end of life. So instead of end of life, we're talking all of life, and we can arrest some of the chronic diseases earlier. So first of all, let me be clear, we don't want compressed morbidity. We want postponed morbidity. And in particular, we want morbidity to be being postponed faster than time is passing, so that people never get to be in the morbid state in the first place. That's the right way to think about morbidity, not compression, but postponement. Well, why not Second, think about it in more incremental steps? I'm just thinking to bring people along. Well, you know, sometimes incremental doesn't work. If people think that the increment is negligible, they're not going to support it. I believe that we should tell it like it is. If the fact is, if the actual science tells us that the next advance is not going to be incremental, it's actually going to be really big, then we should tell people the fact, that fact. So what's the really big that you're seeing? Well, you know, I think that what we're going to be able to do is not just to slow down the accumulation of damage in the body, in other words, the advancement of aging, but actually to repair that damage, in other words, turn the clock backwards, do bona fide rejuvenation. When I say rejuvenation, I mean it in its real sense. I don't just mean plastic surgery. I mean actual removal of the damage of aging and restoration to a younger biological age. That is something that will not happen gradually. 
it's something that will happen very suddenly when we reach a cusp of being able to repair damage faster than the damage is being laid down by our normal metabolism. So, and again, the cusp that you're seeing is 17 years. That's right. I mean, of course, that's a very speculative estimate. It's a 50% estimate. There's at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years if we hit, you know, unforeseen obstacles. This happens in pioneering technology, of course. But I think it is beholden on experts like myself to give our best estimate, probabilistically. And so that's mine. Let's say that you've got a room full of policymakers leading political lights from the United States, the UK, a few Asian countries, let's throw in Singapore and Japan for good measure. And just you, what do you say? You've got five minutes to give your policy pitch. The first thing I have to say is, it's not just me anymore. Don't think that I am an outlier among experts. I used to be an outlier among experts, but they have come to me. And what I'm going to tell you is the center of gravity of expert opinion, not just some kind of individual opinion of one of the many experts. Second thing I want to say is, even though we don't know how soon the medical control of aging is going to occur, and we do know that it's definitely not going to occur in the next 10 years or more, the thing that you need to focus on is not when it's going to occur. What you need to focus on is when the public are going to start expecting it to occur soon, as opposed to the current situation where they don't expect it to happen ever. Well, how do we stoke that demand and that expectation? The expectation will not need to be stoked. The expectation is something that is already out there and being held back, held in check, like a dam, like a, you know, like, a, like a flood that's being held back by a dam because people are terrified of getting their hopes up. But progress in this field is rapid right now. And there will come a time, I believe very soon, like in the next three or four years, when progress is sufficient and the public pronouncements of all experts in this field, not just me, will be sufficiently optimistic that this dam will break. What's that the first visible sign going to be of the dam breaking? Oprah Winfrey. Simple as that. What's going to happen is that people who are the real opinion formers in society are going to start saying different things. The way you get to be an Oprah Winfrey is by paying really close attention to new trends before the public has noticed them and by getting out ahead and essentially leading public opinion. Well, how that's going to work in this particular case is the Oprah Winfrey's of this world are going to see a sea change, a subtle sea change, but a sea change nonetheless, in the form of words, the tone of the pronouncements that experts in the biology of aging are using when they speak on camera. Now, that change of tone is already perceptible to people like me who know what to look for. 
And what I'm saying is that it's a very, very small distance from where we already are before such experts are going to be saying things that are obviously different in tone to the Oprah Winfrey's of this world. At that point, the dam is going to break very suddenly and society had better be ready. Society had better be ready for people suddenly moving. I mean, not just a few people, half of the developed world or more moving in a period of like a week from a point of view that they're probably going to live only slightly longer than their parents did to a point of view and expectation that they will live vastly longer, which, of course, will translate immediately into very different desires in relation to what kind of pension plan they want, what kind of health insurance or life insurance or inheritance arrangements, the biggest ticket items in the global economy. That means if we're not ready, if society, if policymakers and politicians and decision makers are not ready for that and have not done the legwork to provide a smooth transition to that, that changed set of expectations, then there will be an enormous dislocation, an enormous amount of turbulence. So now is the time for those people, those decision makers and policy makers, to be doing that horizon scanning, doing that forward planning, rather than persisting in the pretense that this is all science fiction. Private investors have been scanning the horizon and seeing a lot of opportunity. Money is pouring into the, the healthy longevity space. Has the depth and breadth of this activity exceeded your expectations? I wouldn't say it's exceeded my expectations. It was always going to happen. It was just a matter of time. I would say that it's happened more suddenly than I would have expected, but not more quickly. In other words, if you'd asked me five years ago, before this had really got going at all, I would have said that things had fallen short of my expectations. And they have caught up, yes. And I'm hoping that the, of course, I'm expecting as well, that the momentum that we see today, the exponential explosive growth of the private sector in this space will continue for a very long time to come. Are we going to see some money pouring into why women live longer? Because you said something tantalizing uh, when you were at the lectern. You said we still don't know why women live longer. Testosterone has been discarded as a reason. Can we learn from female physiology? And is anybody doing the research we need? to focus on why women live longer? Well, certainly there is research in this area, but it's a bit of a backwater, to be honest. Not a lot of people are working on this. And to be quite clear, I don't think that's a problem. Because let's remember, women don't live all that much longer than men. And furthermore, women don't have a particularly long, longer healthy lifespan than men. Because they tend to spend longer than men in a poor state of health before they die. But we're so used so, to <laughs> weathering those physical storms that we just stoically get on with it. Well, it's not just psychologically that you get on with it. It's that, you know, physically you get on with it. You don't yeah. die so easily. But no, my point here is that the problems that we see in aging are the same problems by and large in both sexes. They may have somewhat different prevalences in different sexes and occur at different ages and last for different lengths of time, but not very different. 
And certainly the therapies that we are developing, the damage repair approaches to rejuvenating people will apply with absolutely equal efficacy in both cases. The only real thing that is truly um, female specific is, of course, rejuvenating the ovary, which has value in terms of rejuvenating fertility, but also much more than that in terms of rejuvenating the endocrine system and reversing osteoporosis and so on, which of course is a stronger, which a bigger problem in, in women because of hormonal issues. So yeah, I mean, there are some differences, but it's really a detail in the grand scheme of things. Just finally getting back to the policy pitch in front of that crowd, I'm just wondering, you know, how do we move to framing policies around longevity and all of life, not just aging and end of life as we do now? I think really it's not necessarily focusing around all of life, but focusing on a larger extent at the end of life. In other words, not just the real end where people are sick, but the run-up to that period, the maybe the 10 years before people start getting sick, in which the damage that they have accumulated in their body has not yet become abundant enough to make them sick, but it's getting close. And there's definitely enough damage there that it's worth eliminating. So, you know, think about the situation we have with statins or with ACE inhibitors for high blood pressure. These are drugs that you don't give to kids, right? You don't give them to 20-year-olds, but you do give them to people who are in their middle age and who are not yet sick, but they know that the fact that they have high cholesterol or high blood pressure is a warning sign that indicates that they will get sick soon unless they do something. That's the, that's the area that we need to focus on. We need to get people to be much more generally comfortable with the idea of preventative rejuvenation, preventative maintenance. Yeah, in prevention instead of mitigation afterward when you're already sick. But, key, preventative rejuvenation. Not just prevention in the sense of slowing down your progress towards being sick, but actually taking you back. Aubrey de Grey, Chief Science Officer of the SENS Research Foundation, he created in 2009. That is a nonprofit dedicated to combating the aging process. Thanks so much, Aubrey. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Susan. Bye-bye.